hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook and I'm joined as always by James Moore and Charlie Eccleshare. Um, we're doing a special edition podcast, uh, not at our usual time this week, because Charlie and I have just published a story looking back at Tottenham in the 1990s. So it's coming up to the 20th anniversary of Alan Sugar selling his stake in the club to Enoch, which of course is the investment vehicle fronted and run by Daniel Levy and funded by Joe Lewis. Um, We thought it would be a really good time to take a look back at the Sugar era, which is nine fascinating, dramatic, tumultuous years in the history of Tottenham Hotspur, um, and try and analyse it with a bit of distance and perspective. Charlie, it was uh, a long process, but it was fun, wasn't it? Yeah, it was fun. Um, I think I said to you, didn't I, it's like with these big projects, they tend to go through a kind of similar arc of first being a bit daunted at kind of how much you've got to do and whether you can speak to anyone. Then you speak to people and do some really fun interviews. And you're like, this is amazing. Then you get to writing it and it starts off like, yeah, this is really good. And then you're like, oh my God, there's so much. How are we going to kind of condense it all and tell the story and get it over the line? Um, so yeah, it, it was good fun. Um, and yeah, we had some really, we spoke to some great people and uh yeah, I mean, it's maybe slightly delirious. I had a dream uh, last night that Nigel Farage got in touch with me about the piece to uh, tell me that Spurs could have signed Dennis Bergkamp in 95. And I had to be like, Nigel, that's great, but the piece is written, it's too late. So uh, it has definitely driven me over the edge. He must have been livid when Bergkamp joined Arsenal. He, might, he can't have been happy about that. Yeah, I'm sure he would have shared the kind of Carlos kickable um, yeah, exactly. uh, sentiment. But yeah, so it's probably maybe slightly... Uh, crazy but yeah it's been a lot of fun well worth it the question I think on everyone's lips Charlie is what's it like to speak to Alan Sugar on the phone for an hour (laughs) Um, it was very fun it was very entertaining he is I mean he's exactly as you'd expect really he uh, he he, you know he has that same turn of phrase I mean I'm, I'm kind of assuming people have watched The Apprentice if you have uh, you'll know what I mean, but he's, if you haven't, he's extremely forthright. Uh, I mean, he's one of these people who, when you're interviewing, you are like, this is going to be really good copy because he doesn't mince his words. Um, he has quite a unique, uh, phrasing. Um, so it was really fun. And I mean, he, yeah, he, he talks very candidly about that period. Um, and there's just so much to talk about. I mean, I know it's it's a bit of a cliche, a bit hackneyed to say like, oh, this could be made into a movie. But there are just so many kind of plot twists in that. And the dynamic between Sugar and Venables is just fascinating. And I, I think it was fun for, for me and Jack because we're at an age where we kind of remember some of the like later Sugar period, but we certainly don't remember the kind of Venables, um, the early days. So, kind of discovering some of that for the first time was uh, was a lot of fun, and and a lot of fun to uh, yeah to get sugar to kind of get it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. You know those like one liners he uses on the on the Apprentice. Did he did he give you any of those? Yeah, like at the trying, end of the call that he tells yeah, you, yeah, know, like says here on your resume, you're a journalist. Well, here's a story. You're fired. <laughs> that that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> Does yeah. he sound different on the phone then to what he sounds like on TV? Because obviously... um, yeah, there, there were a few of those quips. I mean, you'll, you'll see if you read the piece, you'll kind of see there are a few bits where you're like, "Yeah, I can kind of imagine that's uh, that's sugar in the boardroom." Um, and and I imagine he probably, you know, there was an extent to which um, you know there were kind of shades of the Apprentice. I mean, Jerry Francis, who we spoke to for the piece as well, he said. Um, 
you know, there were kind of two sides to him. There was this, you know, nice, gentle family man. But then in the workplace, he was that, you know, very forthright um, character that we see on The Apprentice. I think one of the things that we we ran into when we were doing the story is that we we know that Sugar is pretty unpopular with a lot of Spurs fans. Like he, he was unpopular at the time because he took on Venables and won. And he himself admitted that when he said that he felt like the man who shot Bambi when he famously got rid of Venables in 1993 and then beat him in court. And then, you know, they had subsequent litigation that rumbled on for the next few years. Um, and James, do you, and you know, even since we published the piece, we've had some, some people tweeting us saying that they don't like Sugar. Um, James, what, is that a fair reflection of Sugar's popularity or not within the Spurs fan base 20 years on? I think you're being quite diplomatic about the wording of some of those tweets, to be honest, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, as you say, uh, Sugar came into the club at a time where I, I guess you could say there was quite a lot of uh, instability. Um, and when, you know, both Alan Sugar and Terry Venables are like massive personalities. And in any kind of walk of life, if you put two people like that together, you know, sometimes they're going to have disagreements, I guess. Um and I suppose if you were being generous to Alan Sugar, you'd say he was in a sort of disadvantaged position of being in that situation against someone who was established in football, or not only established in football, but established at Tottenham as a player and as a manager. So I guess, it, you know, he, he was always kind of fighting a losing battle there, really, wasn't he? He was never going to really win over the fans, you know, against a guy who played in, you know, for, played for Tottenham in the 1960s, which are like the halcyon days for the club. He wasn't like in the double winning team, but he, I think he won the FA Cup towards the end of the decade and won a play with you know, people like Jimmy Greaves and Dave Mackay and whoever else. Um, you know, he's in the background of that iconic picture of Dave Mackay, isn't he? You can see him looking very sort of gruff and butch. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think in modern football, I think the idea of like like the football side and the business side kind of coming together and melding together and it all working, I think we kind of accept that can work now. But I mean, even like 10 years ago, it, it, you know, if you look back, those those kind of relationships, I think, were all generally quite fractious. So I don't think it was like the only, t- the only situation or the only club where that kind of situation played out in that time period where you kind of go, for, you know, clubs like floating on the stock exchange as Spurs did in the 80s. And the business, you know, the, all the money coming in from the Premier League, and that, and the business side of it suddenly feeling so important. Uh, and you're always going to get that kind of situation, I, I, you know. And I, you know, as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm being generous. I mean, I'm sure a lot of the Spurs fans, uh, particularly those who were around at the time, would uh, perhaps not be quite so kind. But uh, you know, but w- when you read this piece, you do kind of get an idea of exactly the state the club was in when he arrived, and some of the some of the good things he did as well. Yeah, I think it's worth emphasising for the benefit of younger listeners and readers just what a massive, massive figure Terry Venables was in the 80s and 90s. Like he, This is a guy who you know had a pretty good playing career, started out managing at Crystal Palace, went to QPR, got QPR to the cup final, got them into the UEFA Cup, and then got the job at Barcelona, like taking over from Minotti in the mid-80s. And, you know, won the, won the Spanish title with Barcelona, lost the, champ- lost was then the European Cup final to, to Stal Bucharest, but he was just like a huge, huge figure. And then he came back to Tottenham as this like massive global guy, El Tel, replaced David Pleat, managing that Tottenham team, which had Lineker and Gaza, won the 1991 FA Cup. And obviously at this point, like Venables was just massive, like massive, massive, massive person. And beyond, as well, on top of all of his football achievements, he had this like desire to be 
a big public figure away from football. Like he had his bar, he did his books, he was on telly all the time. He was like, he was really good friends with Malcolm Allison, the former City and Palace manager, and he was a lot like Big Mal. Um, and that's why it was this kind of, that's why Sugar, like getting into bed with him and then turning on him and then getting rid of him is so interesting because Sugar was, at this point, Sugar was just like a rich businessman. And El Tell was this huge guy. And that's why it's so interesting that Sugar managed to take him on and beat him. And not just huge guy in terms of what he achieved, but as James touched on, just beloved, you know, he both for his achievements, but also his personality. He was kind of the cheeky chappy, the guy. He, he was just, you know, so um, such an institution within football. And as you say, Sugar's this outsider. But obviously there's this there's this massive tension because... The, the view, um, you know, from a lot of people we spoke to in the piece and has been borne out, you know, is that Sugar was this uh, kind of very much the businessman, very much about detail, very much about getting the numbers right. Venables didn't have maybe the same rigor. Um, you know, he he was more about the football side. And so, it, it you know, it was initially billed as this match made in heaven. And obviously, uh, that that's why I think it is so interesting because then the tension... Uh, and, and, you know, for Sugar, he having to from his point of view it felt like Venables was untouchable and he could do you know pretty much whatever he wanted and obviously you know for for Spurs fans it felt like how are you treating this you know beloved legend this way and you know we people we spoke to in the piece you know Darren Anderton uh who was signed by um when Terry Venables was there and you know says he saw Venables as like a second father to him so that's obviously going to Cause a huge amount of upheaval. Steve Perryman, who came in um, as the assistant under Ardiles, under Sugar, you know, felt a similar way to Venables. There is still so much affection uh, to Terry Venables. Yeah, I think that's true, isn't it? Of all the, because all the players at that point, they would either have been signed by Venables and managed by Venables in that sort of eighty-seven to ninety-one period, or ninety-one to ninety-three when Venables appointed first Peter Shreves as like his basically the guy who did the coaching and team selection for Venables. Then the next year, uh, Doug, Li- Doug Livermore and the recently departed Ray Clements. So even though Venables had stepped up in, as chief exec from 91 to 93, he was kind of still running the football team, essentially. That was his job. And so all the... Pl- yeah, like Charlie says, there was so much loyalty amongst the, play- amongst the players towards El Tel. And James, do you, I mean, do you, are you old enough to remember like a feeling of sympathy and support for El Tel? Or were you just a bit too young for that? Yeah, I'm a little bit too young for that, yeah. So you didn't go to the High Court to no, protest yeah, in defence of... Uh, bunk off uh, primary school and go, and go to the High Court. <laughs> sure, there's footage of you there. But. Yeah. You, you, didn't, you didn't protest outside Alan Sugar's mansion in Chigwell with Neil Ruddock's first wife. <laughs> I really wish I had, but no, unfortunately not. Clearly a lot of that stuff is very, is very present. And obviously, obviously it completely tainted... Sugar's reputation and the other, or Sugar's popularity, I should say, with the fans. Yeah. Um, the other thing I want to get at is in the kind of post Venables era after he was got rid of in 1993, do you feel, do you two feel like Spurs struggled to find an identity? Like they were kind of jumping from one post Venables, they were jumping from one manager or like football ideas guide to the next year after year without ever really settling yeah I mean they did that classic thing uh, and I think we have talked about this on the podcast before actually of kind of flitting between like managerial philosophies back and forth between like sort of defensive pragmatic managers and sort of 
maybe more sort of forward-thinking continental-style managers. And if you look through the kind of guys they had there, generally that was the way it played out. Um, and I, I don't think that's entirely uncommon. I think that happens at quite a lot of clubs and it's still happening at clubs now. Yeah. Uh, but it's probably an indication of like not having like a clear sort of idea of the way the club should be run, certainly in terms of the way things should be done on the pitch. Um, and, you know, by the time you get to the mid-90s or mid to late 90s, uh, down the road, unfortunately, uh, another club did kind of get their house in order in a footballing sense and did kind of, you know, back, back a manager and invest into a philosophy and uh, they were incredibly successful. Um, fortunately, fortunately, that has changed. But, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, and obviously Alan Sugar's reaction to that was to bring in a former Arsenal manager in uh, in George Graham, and that was like I guess his, his kind of final roll of the dice, really. Um, and again, but by that stage, he knew he was never going to be popular, and that is what I can remember is you know going to, going to the early games that I went to like in the mid nineties, like the sense that that the chairman was just just completely loathed, and you know he was almost at odds with the football club the entire time. It just felt like uh, he was like a sort of uh, almost like a pantomime villain, really. I, I remember that when uh, George Graham's first home game was against Newcastle, and Alan Sugar <laughs> was on the uh, Alan Sugar and George Graham were on the cover of the program, and I, that must be one of the worst selling programs as ever. <laughs> Alan Sugar and George Graham. I mean, it's just an incredible combination. It was interesting for the piece for um, kind of for balance. You know, we wanted to talk to representatives from the Spurs fan base, and Alan Fisher, who. Uh, some of you may know from Twitter he has a Spurs blog uh, that's really good and he wrote with Martin Cloak People's History of Tottenham and he he kind of echoed what James said you know he he said that it felt like a decade of transitional seasons he said it became this running joke that um, you know every season was transitional and it felt to a lot of the supporters like a kind of lurch from one thing to another and I think the impression you get is is of a kind of reactive um, organisation. So, you know, Christian Gross is appointed uh, largely on the recommendation of an agent. And I think partly because foreign managers were slightly more in vogue, you know, post Arsene Wenger, who'd come the year before and was doing well. And then George Graham, I mean, is fascinating because, you know, he, if you think at that time, the crowd's already kind of baying for sugar um, and... You know, to to then go and appoint this guy who is an Arsenal institution, and also as Fisher pointed out, the sense was that he, um, the sense was that he was kind of on the way down as well. Um, Graham, you know, it, it would be one thing if you were getting someone who was, you know, still at the very top, but this is a guy who you know won the league in '91 with Arsenal. Since then, had the uh, the scandal that saw him leave. He'd been at Leeds, finished mid table, then fifth. Um, so it all added to this sense of you know, a lack of direction. Um, and, you know, the, the finishes in that period were were pretty mid-table throughout. I think seventh was the highest under Sugar. I mean, I think the parallels there, I'm sure a few people listening will have been will have been hearing you talk about, you know, a manager come in from a rival team who's seemingly on the way down. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, those, those parallels are kind of obvious. I mean, I, I don't even think uh, Mourinho had quite the same baggage as Graham did um, and probably wasn't quite as at odds with the philosophy or the idea of the philosophy that the club had or the fans felt the club should have at the time. But yeah, certainly, uh, if you're not old enough to remember, uh, that certainly gives you an idea of the way that sort of rankled with the fan base. Yeah, and let alone the fact, I mean, we should say, is because if you you don't remember that period, I mean, George Graham was synonymous with a dour, boring, boring Arsenal side, you know, so it's not just Arsenal, it's not just the fact that he's, you know, seemingly on the way down, it's also his style of football, which to Tottenham fans was 
completely at odds with you know their perceptions of the club's traditions. And you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that I'm not ever willing to accept offensive football, even if it means you go top of the league. <laughs> Why do you think Alan Sugar went for George Graham? Because it seems like in retrospect, it seems like such an obviously bad decision. Even with Gross, like Gross was a bad decision, but you can see well. He had it was Jurgen Klinsmann's agent, wasn't it? Who yeah, who who, who recommended Gross? You can kind of see why a chairman might think, oh, apparently this guy's a genius. Let's get him in. Whereas with Graham, it's like so, what's the, what's the... it's really interesting. I mean, Graham he says um, that he was advised. There were people at the club who were saying to him because he he has always um, been upfront about the fact you know he's not a football expert. That's not his area of expertise. He said there were people at the club saying to him, yeah, this guy is on a level with Wenger and Ferguson, who at the time were the two preeminent managers, which, as I say, I, I don't think that's great advice because it felt like he was very much not quite what he was by 98. Secondly, he um, was was warned, you know, this this will cause a huge amount of upset. People are going to be furious about bringing in this guy who is synonymous with Arsenal. And he admits, um, he's admitted since that he, in his mind, in the business world, this sort of thing happens all the time. And, you know, he would appoint someone from IBM happily to his computer business. And I don't think he appreciated that it's very, very different in football. And that ties into a whole other um, kind of thread in the piece of, you know, that... Football is just a very, very different business for all sorts of reasons, and that is one of them. And, you know, he might, he, I'm sure, would feel that's irrational. Why does it matter just getting the best man for the job? But football is unique. It's very different from any business. And and Jerry Francis was interesting. He said, you know, it's strange in football that you have owners who often or you know most of the time probably have very little football experience they have expertise in whatever field but they come in right at the top um of an industry they don't uh have a huge amount of experience in it's yeah it's uh i think the lack of experience is one of the most interesting things about this when you're trying to compare spurs now to the present day like oh sorry spurs in the 90s to spurs to the present day is that sugar you know sugar and the board basically had to make it up as they went along and there wasn't so much knowledge like I know that David Pleat got involved and Martin Peters got involved in the late 90s and Sugar was keen to have these football figures around him but you can just tell it was a much more much more kind of off-the-cuff operation I think and the, the clubs themselves are naturally just a much smaller size than they are now because they couldn't make the money and that was one thing that Claude Littmer was really good on when I was talking to him and he it was him saying that they knew they like they had their hands on something that could be really exciting and profitable that is you know, a big, really well-renowned Premier League club in the early 90s. But actually turning it into, like, a big business that made money was really hard. Like, this was right at the start of, like, the merchandise revolution, the superstore revolution, even, like, making sure that you made all the tickets from the from the games. Even, you know, you could sell out White Hart Lane, 36,000 people, but actually making sure you got all the money in was a different issue, was a different issue entirely and one that Spurs struggled with. So I think a lot of this story is wrapped up in the story of, like, football clubs just becoming big successful companies which they are now and but they weren't really in 1990 or 1995 we still see this playing out now don't we that debate of like enough is there enough football expertise at the club you know is a club like united who this is this debate has been rumbling on and is edward woods is is he too involved is he too hands-on which were exactly the kind of things being said about lord sugar and are still said now and it's interesting as well i think you know litner 
issues a kind of mayor culpa saying you know they were too focused on sorting out um the finances and everything like that which needed to be done to a degree but he does say you know maybe they they lost sight of the fact you know the soul of the club is the football obviously and and he you know if he had his time again would be um would try and be closer to the managers and understand them a bit more interestingly lord sugar says he regrets not hanging out the managers to dry he feels he was uh, hung out to dry by the likes of george graham and uh, he should never have stood for it actually jack you you mentioned uh, you mentioned claude Littner there and i think you know, uh, for all us talking at the start, that, that it's quite amusing that the guy who hosts The Apprentice was the chairman of Tottenham for the best part of a decade. Uh, but, but I mean, what I think people, or more people, probably don't realise uh, is that <laughs> one of uh, one of Sugar's henchmen from The Apprentice was kind of his henchman at Tottenham as well. Um, and I, I, you know, I know you you don't watch The Apprentice, so you didn't know before you spoke to him. We had a little chat about it, but he he. Like they build him up on that show, or they used to, maybe not so much in the last couple of years, but like previously they kind of built him up as this terrifying bloke who would absolutely destroy these idiots who are, you know, who are trying to get their dreadful businesses off the ground um, with respect. Uh, well, what was it like speaking to him on the phone? Because I, I get the impression that he probably isn't quite as terrifying as they make on TV. I, I must admit, I've ne- I think I've never watched The Apprentice, and I had no idea who this guy was. Uh, going, in, going <laughs> so wasted on you. Like I, I know who the, I know Alan Sugar is, but I had no idea who this Claude Littman guy was. But he was really nice. He was really really nice. So we spoke. Um, yeah, we spoke a few weeks ago, and basically his role at Tottenham was after Sugar like won the Venable Civil War in the summer of '93. He then brought in Littman. To base to, to to run Spurs, but also as a kind of firefighter, troubleshooter type guy, primarily to get down costs. So Lippmann told me a story that on his first day, he saw there were these big uh, crates of milk outside the main entrance at White Hart Lane, and he couldn't understand why there were these big why these crates of milk were there. So he asked a member of staff. He said, "Oh, it's in case the players happen to train at White Hart Lane instead of at Mill Hill, then they'll want some milk, won't they?" And Claude said, well, that's, you know, if they want milk, they can go to Tesco's and buy it. So he cancelled the milk, and this went down very badly with the players because they wanted their milk, and then Spurs lost their next game, and then somebody leaked it to the Sun saying, you know, complaining that uh, Sugar and Littner had stolen their milk away. So he was there as a kind of, yeah, like cost-cutting austerity guy. And clearly, you know, he didn't make a lot of friends doing that, and I think we, think Charlie spoke to people who were, you know, don't have very fond memories of Claude, but as yeah, as someone to interview, I liked him. I thought he took quite a good, like, balanced sense of what him and Sugar did well and maybe not so well during their time running the club. Do footballers still drink milk? I doubt it. I wouldn't have thought so, but they drink uh, Mo Farah and others drink chocolate milk after um, after running. Apparently, it's a good way of um, kind of re-energizing. Um, but what was interesting with 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 the Claude Littner milk stuff was then yeah you talk to guys like Steve Perryman and others and and you know it's not just the milk but there were other things they felt that the kind of spirit and the ethos of the club was being lost um, and that's why obviously you know with a piece like this the more people you can talk to the more balance hopefully you can get um, the better and and with this I don't know about you Jack but like more than most pieces I've done that you, you know you do get such divergent views. Um, and uh, and that's really interesting because you know inevitably then you're going to be set you're going to present things in a way that some feel is too harsh or too generous um, 
but yeah, it was it's very interesting hearing the different perceptions of that period. Yeah, completely. Like it was a really, you know, it was a very tempestuous time, and there were, you know, the club was in a state in a state of strife like internally at times that it, it really hasn't been in so much in the last twenty years under under Enoch. Um, the whole thing has made me think like. I know Sugar was really unpopular, and I can un- totally understand the reasons why he was unpopular with fans. But do you think, uh, you know, twenty years on, that he deserves a slightly more, slightly better reputation or a better analysis of his time there, just because he got such a bad hand? You know, the club, the situation he inherited from Irving Scholar in nineteen ninety one was very difficult. He had to, he's going into business with Terry Venables, which was you might say a mistake, but at the same time presented difficulties of its own, and. Ultimately, nine years later, you know the team wasn't great, and it's not like he delivered. Obviously, they they did, they did win a league cup, but it's not like the team did fantastically well on the pitch. But the club, like the institution that he handed over to Enoch in two thousand, was in a much better state than the one that he bought off Irving Scholar and Paul Bobroff in nineteen ninety one. I mean, you, you, that that is a slightly difficult question, isn't it? Because you're kind of you're, you're balancing like the club as a as a business almost, or as a, as a kind of entity against the team on the pitch and I know like that there is a balancing act to be made there and I think in the 90s more than any other decade that across football um, became more apparent uh, you know I think if you were to compare like where the club was in the late 80s very early 90s in comparison to where they were like late 90s early 2000s and that wouldn't really be a favourable comparison I don't think but yeah you can't you can't escape the fact that uh you know, things were moving in the wrong direction off the pitch at that point at the club, uh, and clearly he stabilised things. Um, so yeah, I, you know, it, it is a difficult question, and I mean, I think I'm probably slightly too young to be like entirely massively negative on uh, on Alan Sugar. I mean, like I say, all I really remember him is him is just being like hated and it just kind of being accepted that that was the way it was, and everyone being very excited. Uh, when the club got bought out. And and obviously the irony of that is that people have just spent the last 20 years mining that Levy hasn't spent enough money. I think like the, the way I see it is that um, you, you may, maybe uh, it's an entitled view, but I think as fans, if someone's coming in to uh, take over a club that is um, kind of seemingly crumbling, you almost expect, well, if they are a the kind of shrewd businessman they say they are, they will come in, balance the books, um, do all of that. And Sugar did that incredibly well. I think um, why it's divisive, I don't, I don't think anyone would dispute that because clearly that is an achievement and that's not one to be sniffed at. I guess then it's just, um, you know, the extent to which you then want to kick on. And I think, you know, there was like the 94 summer which was amazing hugely exciting that we talk about in the piece you know signing Klinsman and Dimitrescu and Popescu and that kind of gave a taste of what it could be like and I think for some there's this tantalizing feeling that they went far but they didn't just quite go far enough or they didn't have quite the right people um, beneath sugar to to kick on so I think I, I think that's why it's a you know it, it, it remained a divisive period because there were lots of good things but it maybe wasn't quite what um, some were hoping for from that decade uh, but you know, ultimately, they they absolutely did the the main thing which they came in to do, which was to sort the finances out, make it a proper functional organisation. Um, and ultimately, as you say, Jack, that is their legacy, and that has provided the platform for for the last twenty years. I suppose, like the one one critique of what I just said is that the 1990s were a massive boom time to be a Premier League team. Like, it was the first, you know, the Premier League literally started in 1992 
And obviously the TV money from Sky started flooding in. And this was kind of before the international TV money started coming in. But simply by virtue of like play, if you played in the Premier League from 1991 to 2000, you will have made a lot of money. And particularly if you're Tottenham and you play at White Hart Lane, which was, you know, at least in the 90s, one of a pretty good stadium. And you're in London and everything like it's, I think any, you know, maybe you might say that, of course, the club is going to make money and be in a stronger position in 2000 than it was in 1991. I don't know. Um, but it's, yeah, it's it's certainly one that has has got, uh, we've already seen lots of different opinions from fans since we were since we published the piece uh, I'm slightly conscious of time but uh, so I think we're going to wrap it up there but if you want to read the piece you can just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod uh, where you can read my and Charlie's history of Tottenham in the 1990s from 1991 to 2000 um, otherwise we will be back with a more conventional podcast at our normal time at the start of next week where we will look back both at tonight's Europa League game uh, against LASK Linz in Austria, and of course Sunday's North London derby, uh, which we previewed on our regular podcast early this week. We look forward to being back with you again then. Mm-hmm.